You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. In 2022, Team Milk came together by sponsoring female marathon runners for the marathon in New York City. Today, they're more than 20,000 strong. In 2024, Team Milk is making an even bigger commitment to female runners and launching the only women's marathon in the U.S., designed for and by women. The inaugural Every Woman's Marathon will take place in Savannah, Georgia on November 16, 2024. You can learn more and register for the marathon at everywomansmarathon.com. Hey, welcome to the Longform Podcast. I am Max Lenski, and I'm here with Evan Ratliff and Aaron Lemmer. Dudes, hello. Hey, guys. Sorry, I almost missed it. I got a foot cramp. I just got a foot cramp. I just, sat just the, I just sat in the bank for an hour trying to get something notarized. Yeah, that must have been a good time. We I'm trying to think of a joke about long-form foot cramp. <laughs> long, long cramps. That's the joke right there. You did it. Yeah. What is a no- like? What is a, no- a notary? Is basically your like credentialed as being. Do you have to honest. get a, Do you have to get like a degree in honesty? No, no. It's like you can get it in like six hours. You can become a notary. And then you just stamp. You just stamp stuff. But they it's always look at it really, really closely. They look at the <laughs> signatures and they pretend like, like they're a, not just rubber stamping the thing. Do you have like copy editing skills? Like, are you like, are you like close? You're close reading. I think you just operate the stamp. <laughs> it's all about the stamp operation. Purely stamp skills. Uh, who who do we have on this week? Do you? I'm gonna hold on. Do you know who we have that on was, this week? That that acting was so good <laughs> that it's uh, because it was method. <laughs> <laughs> this week we have Patrick Sims, who is a writer for Outside, writer for Harper's, uh, defines intrepid. The guy's been in some crazy situations that he has put himself in on purpose as a reporter. Awesome, really cool guy. I'm really excited that he's on. Tiny uh, footnote on last week's episode. Uh, last week we had uh, Jay Caspian Kang. Uh, after the completion of us taping that episode, um, Jay put out two really incredible stories, both of which he unfortunately did not talk about on the podcast, but I highly recommend checking them out um, if you enjoyed that podcast. Is there any other tiny related items of business? Oh, we have a sponsor. What was it? Uh, tinyletter.com. The simple powerful way to send an email newsletter from the good people at MailChimp. Thank you guys. Here's Evan and Patrick. All right. So thanks for joining us. It's great to be here. Um, I have read your stuff forever and uh, I'll just start off saying that, and maybe this will get into some of the things that I wanted to ask you about. When I chasing Shay was actually the first thing that I read of yours. I don't think I had read the magazine stuff, or I wasn't like a byline familiar person, so I wasn't checking. You know, I didn't associate it with stuff. And that book specifically, I still have it on my shelf. It gave me the sense that being a reporter was this incredible adventure. That that this was something that it was gonna make me an interesting person to do because it was not just talking to people. It was actually like engaging in the world and taking off on these crazy adventures. Is that how you think of reporting? I look back on that as, you know, this sort of mysterious decision to challenge myself to yet yeah, take those things that I knew from reporting, but go big, to go crazy, to go beyond what I knew. I'd done some journalism. I had written newspaper articles. I'd written magazine pieces, but the idea you know, this mysterious idea that you could write a huge narrative, a book, that you could go deep into history, that you could use journalism tools, but sort of bust out of the newsroom and go do it in this very personal and emotional way and report not just, you know, I I love the history of Latin America and the fascinating story of what Che Guevara did to the continent, but 
also I felt like I was unexpectedly kind of reporting myself and changing myself and undergoing something that shed light on who he was and what he had gone through and opened these doors for me understanding, reporting, and writing as well. It was so creative. It was such a spur to do this sort of big, crazy, unknown dare. (laughs) kind of forced me to up my game. Yeah. Um, And so tell for people that might not uh, know the book, just give a little thumbnail of what that book is about. I saw that the young Ernesto Che Guevara had left behind a diary of an early trip he made around South America by motorcycle. And when it came out in English, I like went straight to the store and bought it. I read it, and as I closed the last page of the book, I said to myself, that would make an interesting story. What if you went back around and saw how things had changed in you know, 50 years. It, I mean, it had been 1952 when he sort of went around on his yeah, motorcycle. Wow. A very different era in Latin America. And he had been like Zelig, he'd been present at it all. He saw it in the 50s. He made it happen in the 60s. He became this icon who changed the world. Uh, and for me, it was an origin point story. I knew something about Latin America, and I just had the craving to, like, you know, I ride motorcycles. This is the one for me. And even my mother, my dear late mother, uh, she... When I told her, I said, I had the idea we were fishing. And I said to her, Mom, you know, I think I got this idea that I should go to South America and write a book about Che Guevara. And she, you know, and she said, you're going to do it on a motorcycle, right? And I was <laughs> like, what kind of a mother says, just go get a motorcycle and ride across South America? That is not America? what my mother would say. No. She would so say, I, you're not going to do it on a motorcycle, right? Right. So that was the first time I heard, actually, she said to me, you're going to do it on a motorcycle. And that was the first... I thought, well, it's an interesting story. Someone should do it. But when she said that, I'm going to go, me? I'm the one to do this? And from that point on, I just went. I bought a motorcycle on a credit card. Six months later, I was rolling over the plains of Argentina with no plan, no barely a map, no resources, no experience, and just a desire to see if I could see it through. And some some things go wrong. <laughs> From day one. Yeah. From day one. Uh, You know, day one, I was bit by a dog. Day 100, I was forced off the road. Uh, There were a lot of, uh, there were a lot of obstacles, Uh, you know, things I never, if I'd known about them in advance, I don't think I could have done it. Yeah. Uh, Some of the days were tough. You know, it snowed. I was not counting on that. (laughs) Uh, And everything got behind and, you know, the way life is messy, but it, it, challenged me as a writer and I think it sort of opened a deeper vein for me as a writer uh, and I met so many interesting sources that I felt this obligation to people to tell this history and it was motivating in a very deep way and I found over time that that also happened with my second book uh, The Boys from Dolores which is about Fidel Castro and I had to write it you know if, it, if you get to that point where there's a story you can't not tell that's a good time to go write a book. Otherwise, mm-hmm. I can't really motivate myself to do it. Uh, so someday I expect to find another one like that. But, and did that story just bubble up for people? Because you'd done a lot of reporting in Cuba prior to that. Yeah, and it was a case. A lot of my ideas and work take astonishing amounts of time to come to fruition. You know, it's routine that magazine articles I write, I, I work on them for years and years and years before even getting to the stage of getting started and getting, let alone a commission and so on. And with books, that one, I think for years and years, a a friend had said to me, I saw that I was in Miami and I saw this photo and it shows all these kids. And one of the guys showed me a photo and said, see if you can find them. Fidel's in here and there's 248 kids or something. So this stewed in my brain literally for years and years. And I kept thinking, that would make an interesting story. Wouldn't that tell you something? And finally, I was after like, I think it was six or seven years, I was so frustrated. I like late one night, I went on the internet and bought a ticket to Miami, just like impulsively at my own expense and flew down to Miami and looked at the photo. And that was it. Huh. The guy, same guy, seven years later, showed it to me. He said, all right, see if you can pick out Fidel. And you look at the row of photos and... I didn't quite find it, but once you see who it is, you could tell this 13-year-old is the 13-year-old Fidel Castro. And it became the story of everybody else in the photo. And it just is funny to me that I'm like a, it's so hard for me to convert the initial idea into, you know, it takes seven years to convert that into, 
actually even just getting started on what would become a book. And I, uh, I, I like stories like that that I can't help doing. I've had a few examples over time, and they're always the best ones. Yeah, and that can come from, I mean, you can't make that happen. You, you're open to something becoming an idea, but like, you, you can't manufacture that kind of... Yeah, and there's the mysterious alchemy of turning like an idea into a story. You know, ideas are more plentiful, and some of them are, you know, you have desire for them, but orchestrating them into more elaborate, you know, sort of three-part dramas with solid journalism behind them and, and the marshalling of resources for that is, is, requires so much more than just the idea. You have to grow it, you know, uh, and so many fall by the wayside. I, I'm terrified to think how many ideas I pursue and research and think about for years and <laughs> propose and argue for, which in the end go back in the filing cabinet, <laughs> never to be seen again. Yeah, it's uh, those are the required fodder for the ones that... I wish it didn't have to be that way. I always thought that I would get better, that I would someday I would figure it out. And I have come to expect, I've sort of given up on figuring it out, and I think what happened is it didn't get easier, but with, you know, maybe I got better, but I, I, my, as my strength grew, I reached farther. I was trying to do more. So it's still just as hard because you're trying to do more. Even if you get relatively organized and experienced as a writer, you're still, aren't you just going to try to do more and, and achieve more as a writer and go deeper as a reporter and stuff. So I end up spending more and more time with things and I end up struggling just as long as I ever did. Right. So you mean like you could, you could sort of find and knock out profiles that you know magazines would want, but you're looking for the deeper narrative. You're looking to go to new places, that kind of thing. I thought in the past that I would become able to knock things out. I doubt I could for anything. Hmm. I can, the stories that I love are the ones that motivate me deeply, but they take long. I don't care about that. I like that they take long. I struggle for years on some even magazine articles, let alone books. And I just think, you know, uh, the more time I can take, the deeper I can go, the more interviews I can add, the more careful my writing can be. You know, I'd rather have those be good and few and far between than to knock out stuff more often. And I never sort of, I thought, well, I'll just get faster, mm -hmm. no, you know, but it doesn't really happen. I'm still just as slow as ever. I hope, hopefully the quality has improved, even if output has not. And so, I mean, that gets us into maybe earlier than I wanted to talk about it, but, you know, people are, I think, especially people who try to do this type of work are really interested in the business of freelancing and the, and the sort of, not specifically the numbers, but, you know, as far as I can tell, I could be wrong, but I, I always held you up as someone who has been independent for as long as I've been reading your stuff. Like, I never see that you're taking on a staff writing job or something, and you're writing for Harper's, you're writing for Outside, you're writing for GQ. How how is that lifestyle wise? Did you choose that lifestyle? Is that uh, no? I I would love for the phone to ring and somebody to say, "Hey, come be a staff writer here." But that's not the way the world has generally been going. Um, I've had in some years, particularly with outside, you know, a agreement for an annual contract. There were some years where I had that. So basically they were just guaranteeing they'd publish a certain amount of it and they divide it into 12 paychecks. It wasn't like being on staff. I didn't have right. a desk. I didn't have an office, a phone or anything like that. No health insurance. But it was there as a regular paycheck. But those are the good old days. Those days have gone. <laughs> and as in my earlier incarnations of my career, yeah, I, I sit and stare at a wall all day and look at my laptop and think about whether I'm going to write and finish those things and tell that story. And... Uh, many, many months later, I get paid too little. It's okay. I actually, I am some sort of freak because I still make a living and I write for paper magazines, which are supposed to be dead. Uh, but I, you know, I, I don't myself distinguish between paper and digital, really. But I find that some of the magazines, you know, they've not been affected in the same permanent way that, like, newspapers have. Yeah. Uh, and sectors like book publishing, you know, writing a book is a labor of love that's not really... It's not like a project that you just, you know, at least that I can just do and whip out in quick time. That's a, 
that's a major phase of your life to take on a subject and, and write a book about it. So it's not really about making a living. Uh, somebody said to me, you kind of, you know, writing books is a hobby. You can't really do that unless you have a job already. So I don't have a job, uh, which I find very motivating. Uh, and I, you know, I consider myself uh, lucky beyond measure because I write a lot about overseas. I write mostly about other countries and places that... I think the dramas are larger and the need for writers to explain what is happening is still there. It has not sort of eroded as fast as some sectors of, you know, journalism and, you know, the newspaper business and particularly the business of local and city papers around the country where that kind of journalism has been so hard pressed. Mm -hmm. But uh, the magazine sector, people still make money in it sometimes so they can afford to invest a little in covering the world in different ways. And... Uh, I, I count it very lucky because I have uh, just truly toured the world. Uh, I started out specializing in Cuba and then Latin America, and from there went to Asia, and now I work in Africa. Um, so the, the opportunity to, to see all that and to report on you know, anything as diverse as Uganda or South Sudan uh, and then could go back to Cuba, a place that I find instantly and endlessly renewing. You know, I've been going there for 20 years, and I was down there last time. And I said, I could just do this for another 20 years. <laughs> I really find it's the people so amazing uh, and the place so fascinating and strange. And it, it's like my uh, – it's, it's great to feel that there is something to write about, that something that you need to keep thinking about. Yeah. In some ways, it actually, I never thought of this before, but it, it could be a, uh, an odd advantage, the fact that – there's no like newspaper bureaus overseas are declining. And if, so, if some editor says, you know, I want to get someone into Burma, I want to get like, let's do a piece about Cuba. Let's do a piece about like, who do they call? You know, they call you. <laughs> they call the freelancers. Yeah. Because there aren't the foreign bureaus anymore. And TV news gave up trying to do this stuff mostly. And it's a place where a writer, you know, still matters. I, you know, I remember September 11th, and if you know, on the September 12th, everybody said, "Get me a poet," because we what we needed in the world at that moment was poetry and language. And then after the poets, it was okay. Get me a foreign correspondent who knows where Afghanistan is and can explain what is happening. And then after that, there was there was a need for people to understand things, and they turned to journalism. They turned to writers. They turned to you know, this, the need for understanding. And God forbid we get that need in such terrible ways, but I think it's fundamental. It's not going away. It's not a kind of writing that is going to become obsolete. If they close the bureaus, I guess that's more work for people like me, <laughs> right? Yeah, that's, a, that's sort of like a grim optimism, maybe. I, you I know, like I can't believe it's all bad. I hate to see... You know, as somebody who works overseas all the time, it's very dangerous. I fear for this country when I see how little people care about or know about our role in the world and how big our footprint is. At every level, from politics and war and peace to the environment, we have a gigantic footprint. But, you know, Americans can barely stay focused on Afghanistan, uh, let alone... With, with our own troops there. Right, let alone, you know, in Cuba, everyone thinks that the Americans are constantly plotting against us. <laughs> right. I have to explain to them now, you no, know, okay. actually, you're like number 22 on our list of things, number 62 on our list of <laughs> things true. to worry about. It's true. Uh, I did some, I once did some reporting in Bangladesh, and I was just amazed at how many people believe that things that were happening in Bangladesh were CIA plots. And I was kind of like, well, you know, it's possible that they have some interest here it's it's muslim country so post 9-11 you know whatever but like yeah. frankly they probably just don't they, they're not that interested yeah. in what's happening here i hate to say well i wish that uh people would find a way to engage with you know to me storytelling is the sort of killer app for unlocking the rest of the world for people writing could do it in a way that tv does not. It's Cuba is a place. I first went there because I realized 
you know, almost no Americans go there. Very few journalists, even journalists would tell you, oh, you can't go there. It's impossible. When was it? When was this that you first went? Early 90s, 91. And were you already working as a journalist or did you? I had down, I'd been a small town newspaper reporter in Connecticut covering local stuff for a year. So I had some experience, just enough to know how to type and tell a narrative. And, and straight from and college you did that? I did that. I draw, Not even straight from college. I dropped out of college. Dropped out of college to into a small town newspaper right. job for a year. And I kind of hated it. I was, you know, covering high school graduations and getting yelled at and drinking seven <laughs> cups of coffee a day. Well, you know, I was 20 years old. <laughs> I was like shaking like a leaf and, you know, the mayor would be yelling at me over some mistake. And uh, uh, I kind of hated it. And I went back to college, finished, and started uh, traveling the world and backpacking, really. Just headed out, you know, and thought I'd be gone for weeks or months and ended up spending a year abroad. And I suddenly realized, hey, this could really rescue journalism for me. This writing about the rest of the world and understanding it and, you know, engaging with it, it's something that a writer could do that, you know, it was just endlessly rewarding and sort of solved the problem of, you know, being in a small town newspaper right. <laughs> covering the Planning and Zoning Commission. So then to Cuba on assignment? You got an assignment or you just went? Um, no, I just went. Yeah. Uh, you know, these days I'm in a privileged position where I have worked for the same four or five magazines for 18 years now. So, yeah, I get a commission to go somewhere, but that's not how I started. I on a chance, thinking I could sell something about Cuba, I went and did it. And I always took gambles like that, and most of them were losers. I, I think <laughs> I wrote one article on Cuba that paid $300, so, you know, I got a clip. Uh, but that led on to other things, and I went on from there to Latin America, and I started, uh, I thought, oh, I'll write something about Peru, and I'll pay for my trip by writing articles about it. Ha, ha, ha. You know, I think I managed to sell eventually long after one small article for a very small fee. But I got a clip out of it. And I just was stubborn and I kept going. And I, uh, when I was too broke to survive, I did something else for a while. But I kept coming back to it. And one clip became two, became three, became eight, became 80. It became, you know, a beat that I just got known for covering. And slowly, in the, over the course of about four years, worked my way into Harper's Magazine. About, took about four years of trying. And then uh, took about four more years of trying, I got into Outside Magazine. What was the first Harper's piece that you did? Um, I proposed a little piece on Cuba about the ration system in Cuba. And they, what happened is I proposed it and they weren't interested. And then like six weeks later, the phone rang. <laughs> And they said, hey, are you that guy who proposed that thousand-word item on Cuba? And I said, yeah. And they said, okay, how fast could you do that? Could you do that today? And I said, what is going on? What are you talking about? And they were about to close their issue. They lost a page of advertising. It threw off the page count. They had to kill a longer article. Suddenly, they had two pages to fill. And the guy's like, can you do that today? And I said, honestly, no. But tomorrow, I could do it for tomorrow. They held the magazine. I literally got on Amtrak and went to New York and wrote the piece in their office. And the strangest thing of all is they typed up a check on a manual typewriter. No and way. handed it to me as I left the room. I was like, you're kidding. So in one day, uh, that was my thing. After four years of trying, and I got into Harper's, and that led on to a story about Che Guevara in Latin America. Oh, wow. Yeah, that was probably the last time they ever gave you your check oh, on delivery. Oh, yeah, yeah. Talk about speedy. That's, no, that set the record for the fastest paycheck yeah. I've ever gotten as a writer. <laughs> Do you still have to chase checks? Do you, are you still about to call people and oh, say, where's course. my check? Of course. Well, that, that makes me feel better. Yeah. Now, when I was reading back through these stories, you know, I mean, there's so many that I would like to talk about. We can't talk about them all. But, um, you know, when you go into, you know, Colombia to talk to the FARC, you go into Burma to try to see where the generals live, and it happened to be right before the cyclone, you, you're often a character in the story, there's, there's you trying to find your way to talk to these people, like the FARC. How do, I, how do I get there? And even in that piece, you say, I was here for a day and I wasn't having much luck. And then somehow you're talking to a taxi driver and the taxi driver's like, I know a guy who knows a guy. And as a reader, there's a feeling like, did you talk to 500 taxi drivers? And that was the one? Like, what I'm getting at is sort of like, do you have... 
failures where you go and you can't you can't get in there. Yeah. You can't get what you want to get because when I read the story, I'm like, how does he get this stuff? How does he find these I people? am a big believer in sort of forcing your luck a little bit. So yeah, I keep knocking on doors and get turned away again and again and again and again and again. Maybe somebody won't talk to me. Maybe I can't crack the town. Maybe I don't know how to... I mean, how do you find a guerrilla group in the field in Latin America, right? Who would know that? They're hiding. Nobody knows that. Even they don't know where they are. You just show up in Bogota in the year 2000 and start asking around. And start asking around. But you find somebody, you know, my whole concept with that story is I noticed that war in Colombia was very closely tied to the U.S. We were a major player in the war. We invested, Clinton had an initiative to put many billions into the war. And I saw symbolically how close we were to the war because you could wake up in the U.S., you know, check your email, and there'd be a headline uh, twice in the space of a year. I saw a headline flash on that said, you know, guerrillas drive on capital. And in the space of a year twice, the manager of guerrilla group, you know, got within 60 miles of the capital, Bogota, in Colombia. And living in New York, I was like, you know, I could get to the airport by lunchtime. There's a daily flight every afternoon to Bogota. It's not that far. You'd be there maybe four or five o'clock in the afternoon and there's taxis in front of the airport. You could get somebody to drive you an hour or two toward the front. Could you do it in one single day? Hmm. And I waited and waited for this day to come. I had this idea, I'll just you know, insanely rush to the airport and walk onto a flight and go see the war. It, just to prove that you could do it, that's how close we were and I wanted to capture the idea that we can't hide from that war. We were involved in it. We were buying the helicopters. And the day never came, but I sort of said, all right, I'm going to go make it happen. I'm going to go, you know, the New York Times is quoting these guerrilla leaders at secret hideouts in the jungle. Uh-huh. So I was like, hmm, apparently they are willing to talk to journalists. And then I ended up, you know, trying NGOs, church groups, local journalists, radio reporters, people in the street, taxi drivers, and one out of every 25 attempts led to some information that was useful and with enough time with enough days you keep working it and then everything seems like you know nothing's helping and I went to this town where everyone assured me you know there's a lot going on around the town you can find stuff there and nothing was happening nothing was working nobody would help me nobody knew what I was talking about and then seven o'clock in the morning I'm woken up in the hotel a guy I met who had made obscure comments about, well, you know, I don't really know what we could do to help you. Suddenly he's there at 7 o'clock, and he says, get your cameras, let's go. (laughs) No warning, no preparation, no where are we going, don't ask any questions, get your cameras, let's go. So I grab my cameras, I forgot to take my wallet, and off I go to the war. And we're snuck out of the town, we're in... And to me, sort of showing the, the experience of the reporter has so many advantages. I want people to walk a mile in my shoes. The purpose of that article was to prove how close we are in America to that war, Hmm. how close we are. We drive it with our cocaine habit. We drive it by giving them $9 billion and 60 helicopters. So I wanted people to go every step of the way with me into the jungle encampment, through the swamps, in the boat, what it's like when a black hawk comes overhead and starts circling around looking for the bad guys. And you realize, holy crap, I am the bad guys. I'm with the bad guys. Uh, so all that to me justified making almost a form of travel writing, this war story. And yeah. I do use my own, you know, I am first person, uh, but I try to have that in a creative tension with the idea that, you know, we are not the story ultimately. The writer can be part of the story, but there's more at stake than me. You know, it's about people in Colombia. It's about things that I want people to come with me so that we are together going to, to see this amazing thing. Mm-hmm. And what's your relationship to the danger of that situation? I mean, are you, obviously you're... Denial. Seasons, you've been everywhere. Denial? Denial. So you just go? The guy knocks on your door and you just say, all right, no, you just weigh my chances and I'm going to go? You know, I met him before and I didn't really know. And he said, come meet somebody. So yeah, it's a gamble. I, in that case and in others, I've trusted my life to strangers. Um, I've never made my peace with that. I don't know what to think about it. I think about it too much. Uh, I worry about it all the time. I do a lot of assignments. I think I have a high tolerance for risk. I sort of grew up motorcycling. Mm-hmm. I trace it back to that. and. 
you know, my dad was a motorcyclist, and my mom thought it was perfectly normal to send me off to Latin America on a motorcycle. So obviously, <laughs> I had some of that at an early age, uh, and I always felt like I just went one step more, just very trying to be as careful, trying to, you know, always scared, always wondering, can you do this? Should you do this? Is it worth doing this? Is it necessary? But, you know, big dramatic stories like that war in Colombia sort of call on you to do things that honor the story itself, the way people are, you know, the casual suffering by the side of the road mm -hmm. that you encounter while doing those things is, you know, a reminder of this incredible importance to writing and why, you know, even if it's not going to reach millions of people, maybe the readers of Harper's Magazine will learn something that matters to them and that changes their ideas so that's enough for me and when you uh it's in the burma story at one point you let slip that you have a kid or like your child has just been born i think it's like a an astrologist is making a prediction yes. that you will soon be married i'll soon get married like, well i'm already married and i just had a child but close enough um but does that did that change your thinking about that I mean it could go in either direction I, I presume that you could think well these stories are more important than ever actually I feel like or I want to pull back from dangerous pieces you know I have to say I kind of I've had one or two occasions where I thought I don't want my son to grow up in a world like that and it was something which is sort of a selfish argument for going and doing and a, a visit someplace to write about it you know I don't want my it's almost like a justification, but it is a motivation. I mean, I, I, I guess what it is, it's presumptuous to think that, you know, writing will change the world. I don't really succeed. On a few occasions, I've attempted to influence events that never really had any effect at all. <laughs> but, you know, I, I feel like there are things worth fighting for in life. Um, People have often told me, I did not want this or ask for it, but many times, including by the side of the road in Colombia, people in remote places, in difficult situations, in the, 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 the sore spots of the world, those people say, oh my God, it's a journalist. Look at that, it's a writer. Hey, are you asking questions? Thank you. Thank you for caring about what happens here. Go tell people in your country what's happening. And they're often a very common reaction is they say, okay, write this down because they, have, they feel that it's important what's happening to them and they want the world to know. And to be there is a privilege, to be able to do that and to be the guy who can get up the dirt road and find those people, that's important to me. That's something that I have sadly learned how to do. And yeah, I have been with five different guerrilla insurgencies in the field yeah. now, so it's a bad specialty to have. And but... once you get there, do they... Do they open up because you're there and they, they want their story out in the world? Or do you have to, I mean, how do you approach these people? I assume it's a delicate thing once you're even in there because they're, you know, if you write something negative about them. I think there's three types. There's, it's very ideological, actually. Uh, insurgencies like that are Marxist-Leninist, like the ones in Colombia, they have a press strategy. They believe in engaging with the world and telling their story. They want to make what they call propaganda. So they say, thank you for coming to make propaganda with us. Uh, and they want to show off their feats of arms and their winning story. Maoist groups, no. There's no press strategy. Their press strategy is to hit you over the head with a stick. And it's much more difficult and dangerous and menacing. So that would be like the Khmer Rouge in Cambodia or in Nepal, uh, the Red Army guerrillas there, they were willing to talk to us in the end, but it was a much wilder scene, a sort of army of peasants who were fighting to establish a workers' utopia in the mountains of Nepal, and the ideology was a little cultish, and the, hmm. the mood was pretty tense. And but, you know, We were able to negotiate that one. Uh, the third class are people that I've written about a lot in my life are criminals in the underground world, which 
they don't want publicity. They have they depend on hidings. They're much tougher to crack. You know, it's sort of bizarre how you know a good Marxist Leninist insurgency. They've got a press officer. You know, they have email. They yeah, they, right. they literally you know they're like we're on Hotmail. Yeah, uh, that was in the Harper story yeah. about Columbia. They and they're like, here's account. my set phone number. You know, and they're sort of they they, they wanted to talk to reporters, even if they were threatening and menacing sometimes, but uh, not so easy with the criminal world. They just don't want their stories told. Yeah. Wait, where does, um, where does sort of like Al-Qaeda, I mean, that's not an insurgency. That's yeah, that's a, a different group. group. I guess there's your four. Or um, maybe they're criminal. I mean, you but they, they are, you know, a religious group, you're either in or you're out. You're a believer or you're not. Um, so yeah, there is no really dealing with them. They don't have a press strategy and I have not been able to write about al-Qaeda in that sense. Uh, I went to Yemen to write about al-Qaeda. This is for GQ. For GQ. And in that case, you could talk to, you know, at some risk, get around the countryside. I was able to talk to analysts in the country who sort of knew about the political engagement that had happened historically between the government in Yemen, but you're not uh, the government of Yemen and al-Qaeda. But no, they don't, they don't give interviews. They, and that, and, did that piece, I was curious about that piece, actually, because you got kicked out of the country for that piece. And did it short circuit the reporting you were going to do and you ended up doing a different type of story? Were you? There, was, there were a lot of changes going on. The Arab Spring was going down and yeah. I had been preparing for many months to do a couple of articles in Yemen, uh, even from before the Arab Spring. So I happened to be, have an application for a press visa in when the Arab Spring broke out, which they uh, refused to process, and they stalled, and months went by, and the revolutions took over in the streets of Yemen. They stopped accepting all press applications, but mine was already in there, uh, and I jumped on, after lots of stalling, I jumped on Amtrak, I went down to DC, I went to the embassy, and I sat down in their living room until they filled out the application. And huh. it took about three hours, but after about two and a half hours, they, somebody walked in and said, okay, and they gave me a visa. Uh, so I flew off to Yemen in the midst of total street revolution with both trying to tell the story of the country, which was suddenly caught up in the revolution, and a second story about al-Qaeda, and everything just you know went crazy. I was lucky. We got 13 full days in reporting before uh-huh. we were uh, caught and locked up and uh, after 14 hours deported from the country. So I felt like I got enough. It was, yeah. everything was up in play. We had no idea what was going to happen. It was, you know, the sort of late stages of the Arab Spring. And it is a truly exotic and fascinating country. And uh, I felt lucky that I only got deported after 13 days. So I, I was able to fill my notebooks with, with stuff. And that, that story also seemed, I mean, I can't remember exactly what the coverage was at the time, but looking back on it, it seemed prescient in terms of, What's his name? Anwar al Awlaki, yeah. Who was then, had almost been killed by the U.S., then was later killed by the U.S. government, right. U.S. He, citizen, and now... And when Osama bin Laden died, Awlaki was one of the few preachers left in the organization. The curiosity that he was U.S. born uh, made him twice as interesting. And uh, I was able to write about the Arab Spring, a rare case where I was in the right place at the wrong wrong time or the right time i'm not sure which but everything came together in one great rush seems like the right right time i mean is there any right time to be in yemen you know that was it didn't feel like the right time it really getting you know we weren't arrested in the sense of handcuffs and paperwork but i was with the photographer marco de laurel it was no joke they Mm -hmm. rolled us up like a cheap carpet and we were locked in a room for 14 hours and for about the first maybe six hours, that was okay, and everything was nice, and there was coffee, and we're just asking you some questions. But then the night shift came on, and the pressure started. Man, you could hear gunshots in the street, and these guys were scared, and they were thugs, and they were thugs with a mission, which was to get rid of every foreigner who might witness what was happening. And they kind of got madder and madder during the court. It started at midnight, it's 2 o'clock in the morning, Guys bursting that, you know, for a while we'd been around other people, then they removed everyone from the room, and we were sort of, you know, took away our documents, and things got very menacing, and they started threatening the photographer, and it got ugly. It didn't really get physical because we sort of stopped, uh, stopped it in its tracks, I guess, but in the end they just deported us. But it was, it felt like a terrible sort of miniature dose of what 
people in Yemen were going through on the streets. You know, uh, nobody was trying to kill me. I'm a foreigner. They just deport me. Yemeni journalists were getting their heads split open, mm-hmm. you know, on the street, literally getting smashed and beaten up and arrested and thrown in jail, whereas I was just put on a plane to Istanbul. So, uh, lucky escape for me. And similarly, I, you know, in Burma, you I actually wanted to ask you about that because you went on a tourist visa to Burma. Yeah, I at usually a time. do. Yeah, do I, you? Yeah. I, I like to write about you know the difficult enclosed places where they're trying to stop the world from seeing what's happening. I think that's so valuable. And you know, I first went to Cuba f- because of this instinct that nobody was really able to see what was going on there, and I spoke Spanish, and I thought I can do this. And it's, all these years later, I'm still motivated by that, that, okay, Burma, if they don't want us there, what a great reason to go, what a great opportunity, what a need for it, what a motivating, revealing experience as a writer. Uh, so I, I love that, and I don't like to ask permission. I would rather go to a place where I'm not welcome. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> There's uh, another story I want to talk about, and then I also want to talk about the story that just came out, which I actually haven't even read yet, but... Um, this story about Argentinian soccer is like one of those that I feel like the five freelance writers I talked to were kind of like, I wish I'd done that story where <laughs> you could describe it, but you basically embedded uh, with the most serious soccer fans. Was it Boca or River Plate or both? Uh, Boca and then Boca. other clubs as well. But I regard Boca as the sine qua non of soccer hooligans in the world today. And you asked me, you know, I, I, I said at some point I didn't want my son to grow up in a world like that. That's the story I was thinking of. I really? Hate, I hated those guys. Really? I hated them. I felt threatened by them. I had, in some ways, I was out for revenge because in the 90s, I had done some reporting and spent some time goofing off in Argentina, and I went to soccer game, and I got pushed around, and stuff thrown at me and you know people would have attacked me if they could have got at me the police were between me and them and because see, of uh because i happened to be sitting in a section dedicated to visiting fans right yeah uh, just because i was there wasn't them yeah and i really disliked that sort of thuggish side of the soccer culture that was already strong at that time and Globally, soccer was changing, sort of its balance of power shifting in some ways to Latin America, where the players were coming from. And these guys were starting to go from being just menacing soccer thugs to international businessmen with their finger in, in a pot in Europe. And oh, running controlling the stuff, running their own that clubs. That was something I had never read before, uh, just about the way that they were taking a cut off the players' salaries yes, and, and the kickbacks. player sales. In a few clubs where it's worst... They're like at war. They threaten, you know, the club Independiente while I was there. Their fans are, most of the fans are good, but then you have this hardcore group which can be thousands of people and they're criminals. They're making money off everything from ticket resales to protection rackets. And they start to, you know, defy the police. There's just this sort of lawless zone. And I had been haunted by those early experiences. And I just, for 15 years, I've been thinking, there's just no way you could get in there and like spend time with these guys. There's just no way you could do it. And finally, I was like, you know what? <laughs> Let's just go try and see what happens. And nothing worked at first for weeks. But finally, you know, towards the end, we started cracking things in the Argentine style, buying people a lot of steaks and wine and meeting people who knew people who knew people. And it eventually kind of opened up this dark underground of these violent guys who were, you know, uh, Bill Buford has written a lot about soccer hooligans very well. It's a great book. This is the sort of Latin American version of that. Uh, but had the advantage that they had become kings of the world because they're players. Argentina is the number one producer of superstars in the soccer world, the biggest contracts, the most players. And these guys, you know, suddenly 4% of so and so's contract is disappearing. And you're talking $20 That's million. Dollars. That is insane. Uh, and so, so, break that down a little bit buying stakes. Getting, like, where does it start? Where, where, do, where is the first thread that you, you pull? know? You're in, you go fly to Buenos Aires? I pull on every thread I can find. So there were a couple, the violence had gotten so bad in stadiums in Argentina. You know, people were getting killed at a regular base several times a month at games. I mean, you'd talk 10, 15, 20 
people a year getting killed at games, plus that not counting the murders outside the stadiums or two blocks away or the revenge killings because uh, money was involved and gangs were involved. So there'd been pushback. Some groups started to arise. A couple of people tried to organize anti-violence campaigns. So I reached out to them, and they had had their own dealings with the leaders of these gangs, often not successfully. There'd been an attempt at a sort of detente, which really didn't go anywhere. Mm -hmm. And these gangs have protection. They, first of all, they're passionate soccer fans. So anybody could identify with them and love the team from a high-ranking politician to a police officer on the corner. But then they've also become useful to the political class. They turn out for demonstrations. If you need a counter-demonstration, call, call your friends at the fan club and 60 guys will show up and threaten to beat up the strikers or something. So they became these kind of players in Argentine life in the society. And the pushback didn't really succeed, but there, that was one way in to meet people. Um, even the failures were very revealing. Like, I speak Spanish, but not so well that I always understand what's going on. And I got passed through somebody I called, said, oh, I know a guy. Call, talk to this guy. I know a guy. Talk to this guy. And soon I don't know who I'm talking to. <laughs> and this guy's like, all right, I'm going to come talk to you. Meet me in a restaurant. And on the way to the restaurant, my phone rings, and it's the driver of the car saying, he wants to know how much you're paying. And I was like, being a green, thoughtless gringo, I was like, what does he mean? Like, I'm buying him lunch, or I'm going to... And no, of course, he shows up at the restaurant, and he's like, where's the cash? And, uh, and I was like, I can't pay you. <laughs> That's not how things work. I go buy you lunch, blah, blah, blah. So that one failed, and the guy in a great huff left, but I thought it was very revealing about you know, he even in the few minutes I was able to keep him at the table talking to him, apologizing like crazy, sweating bullets. I'm dealing with like a guy who is a brute. Yeah, that guy doesn't give a shit. That guy is the leader of the worst, most dangerous, you know, the Independiente Red Devils fan club. He, you know, he's proud of his streak of violence and he looked like he snapped me in half and I'm not a small guy. <laughs> Uh, so even in those failures, I took something away from it, his attitude, who he is, his boasts about what he does. It became a mini interview. He walked off giving me, but I still got a couple minutes with him and a, a glimpse to him. And, and I try to pull on every thread I can get. Yeah. That way. And then there's, this, there's a moment in that story where you are in the stadium and then you, you have a guy who's sort of like helping you. He's like, okay, you can go in with me. You're going in with him. But then you kind of like encounter the leader. And as right. you say, like, you're not a small guy. You're not a guy who's going to sort of uh, fade into the background entirely and sort of be like, well, no one's going to notice me. I mean, you kind of have to reckon with. Yeah. Yeah. I, why uh, am I here? The guy I'm, wants to know I'm why you're here. tall enough to tower over the crowds, even in Argentina. And I look like a gringo <laughs> journalist. <laughs> um, but I also, you know, it's true. That was a case where I felt, you know, my journalistic ethics or what's my responsibility to the reader here because money was changing hands mm -hmm. and I tried to do it in a way that made sense and was normal and common sense ethical so tell me if you agree but first thing was buy somebody lunch that's okay right I could buy a guy a lunch who wrote a book who's a member of the thugs and he wrote a book about it yeah, you're not buying a story when you buy right. someone lunch okay then he wanted me to buy a copy of his book so I gave him twenty dollars for his book Okay, right? I'm just buying his book. But at this point, you know, suddenly he's got a steak sandwich at a 20 bucks. Then it was time. Later on, he, he was the one who helped get us in for a ticketing fee. And the ticketing fee was kind of pricey, but I know from experience, actually, this is, this is the only way to get in. All tickets to all Argentine soccer games are sold to members in advance. Yeah, it's true in Europe, too. A, yeah, you're admitted with a plastic ID card. So yeah. what you need is someone to lend you your card. You're renting their card, and this is, you know, scalping, basically. People do it in the States. People do it there. So they were pricey. More money in the guy's hand. Well, I thought, well, okay, I'm buying tickets. It's legit, right? Right, Patrick? <laughs> Well, then we get to the point where that other guy, the thug, showed up for lunch at this bar, and he wanted $5,000. And I was like, uh, give me a minute to talk to the photographer for a second. <laughs> and I talked to the photographer, Marco DeLauro, and he said, he's Italian, he said, this is totally impossible. Of course we cannot pay this. this all, we have no ethics. No one is going to believe us <laughs> if we talk, give this guy the money. Forget it, Patrick. We might as well go home. So I was like, go back, go back outside, say, I'm very sorry, but I cannot give you $5,000 for the interview. So that was my sort of attempt at some common sense way of reporting it. 
you know, and it didn't work so well because apparently we didn't spend enough money. We get into the stadium, and after only 10 or 15 minutes, the leader of the fan club saw us and was not happy and sent orders that we were to be chased off. And we ended up making a point of pride of pretending we weren't leaving for <laughs> at least 15 minutes and then quietly sneaking out. Uh, well, you know, as soon as it got to the second half, we're like, okay, we made it to the second half. Let's get out of here. And we ran for it. But uh, you got it. You got the story. Yeah, I, mean. I felt like in the end, we got, you know, sweat close to them and lived in their world for a while and saw their tricks and their scams. And we had a lot of tough encounters with them. They, the same photographer, he said to me, Patrick, this is more dangerous than Afghanistan. Because they really, I mean, these are criminals. These guys, this is their living uh, it's not a joke to them. Yeah, it's, it's also something that in a journalism ethics class would be interesting to look at the practice versus the theory. I mean, what are you going to do? How are you going to get in? Well, uh, you know, I'll note the reason that guy asked for 5000 bucks is because a European television station had paid him 5000 bucks. Mm. So European ethics or Japanese journalists are routinely give gifts or pay for interviews. Uh, in Europe, that's fairly common. Uh, it's supposedly not done in the United States. I don't do it. But then I'm buying steaks for people and bottles of wine. Uh, you know, I even tried with that guy. I said, in the United States, we're not allowed to pay for interviews, but I could buy you a lot. So, like, having a discussion about journalistic ethics with the gang leader, you know, outside the bar at four in the afternoon in San Telmo and Buenos Aires, just thinking, what is happening? You should have said, have you read, ever read Janet Malcolm? The journalist and the murderer? Yeah. Uh, let's refer back to that. I don't think that was his... His chosen form of reading. Well, let's talk about the Sudan story because it's out right now and uh, it's so new that I haven't gotten my outside yet. So I haven't read it. So um, I rushed out this morning it. and bought a copy in an actual paper magazine at an actual magazine seller. It was so 20th century. It's uh, very old school. And you should be reading it on your tablet. It's a beautiful, uh, long feature about South Sudan, an outside magazine called Born on the 9th of July. And South Sudan is the newest country in the world. It's only about a, coming up on two years old. And we did an Atavis piece that came out right when South Sudan became independent. And it was about a new bowl. But. It, and it's a fascinating moment to see a new nation born. Can they do it? Can they pull it off? And I wanted to try to go ground truth this a little bit by South Sudanese standards. These are relatively calm times. After 22 years of war, they're only threatening each other with sticks. Mm -hmm. uh, after genocide, they're down to just sort of complaining and yelling at each other in diplomatic circles. Uh, so it became possible the countries are opening up. And that phenomenon fascinates me because I do find, in general, even the UN will tell you, you know, the number of basket case nations in the world is declining. And what that means is more places that have had long and chaotic and troubled histories are starting to be semi-functional. And South Sudan is like that. So to me, that looks like the world getting bigger. That looks like you know a new country coming online, a place where people sort of are getting some democratic accountability somewhat, and you know new opportunities to help people economically, to develop the country, to do journalism and writing are appearing. Things are getting larger in that sense in the world. So I see opportunities, you know, as a writer in these things crop as the world gets slightly less chaotic. It's hard to believe sometimes, but it is a little bit, statistically speaking, getting there are fewer conflicts. Uh, and that opens up avenues of investigation and discovery in the world, which are always so, you know, to have anything that's preciously sort of new and optimistic in this world is incredible even when it's like South Sudan, uh, a place where, you know, most days of the week stink. But to have a couple of good days in South Sudan is an amazing thing. Well, so this was your idea? Was this something you, you came to them with or they came to you with? It's an outside. This came to me because of a wonderful personal connection uh, through my, my wife's twin sister had been working in a refugee camp uh, for Doctors Without Borders and met a young South Sudanese guy. She was a logistician building refugee camps and putting up buildings and stuff, and she was hiring people. And she met this young guy who wanted to work, who wanted to get educated. He was 12 years old. She started helping him out, sort of putting him in touch with people who could pay for his school fees. My wife, the twin sister, uh, started sponsoring him 
and paying for his high school. And then he graduated. He did very well in high school. So he went to medical school. And amazingly, he just graduated. He is <laughs> South Sudanese and went back to South Sudan yeah, from wow. this refugee camp as an MD. And I knew the guy and had written previously about him. But I, when he finally went back to South Sudan as a refugee, I, all my radar was on for South Sudan and the story of the new birth of this country. I'd learned about it through him. So that was a rare case where this personal connection kind of challenged me to you know, so what is the story of this troubled land? Mm-hmm. Uh, and in that case, I chose not to write about him, really. Um, I had previously written about who he was, but I was, wanted to tell the story of the country first and foremost. as a rare case where I sort of set aside, even though the connection had opened things for me, I put it to one side and focused just on a sort of more straight journalistic approach to the country. Mm-hmm. And do these types of stories... I mean, do you feel like you're an optimistic person after being to a lot of dark places? Do you feel like you struggle with having seen all these things and having a, a negative view of humanity because of them? I do. You know, maybe it's just temperament, but amid all the wreckage that I have seen, I do see positive things happening. You know, a story that's precious to me is resilience because there is tremendous problem in the world and and our ability to solve problems, you know, starts with telling stories, starts with exposing problems, pointing them out and discussing them and analyzing them, holding them up to the light. And we do have, we more than any people ever in the history of the world, um, you know, I'm an American born in the, white American male born in the second half of the 20th century. I'm like... Who's going to do this if not, you know, our society in this moment? We have the ability to affect things. And I feel like, despite all the terrible things I've seen, maybe because of them, I have to have some degree of optimism. I've always seen that in troubled places. It's shocking when you see a place like Cambodia. People are dirt poor, literally dirt poor, no shoes. But they still save up food for a festival, for a religious festival. They set aside a pig. Even when they're hungry, they save it, they keep it back because they must have that celebration. And I've seen that all over the world. I've seen that in Peru, in Bolivia, you know, high altitude in these cold environments where people are potato farmers, they've got nothing, but they still must come together socially as a society and, and have rituals and have celebrations and have the good things as well as the bad that they get every day. So I find that sustaining to me as a human being. So I had one more thing I want to ask about, um, which is more related just to the writing part of things. How do you approach stories as a writer, forgetting the reporting and the things we've talked about, but when you sit down with all this material, what's your sort of approach to that? You say stories take sometimes a long time. Is that the writing? It's, it's the thinking. Writing is hard and goes slowly for me, and I chip away at it, but the most important thing is figuring out what I really believe about something or what, is, what did I learn when I was in South Sudan? What is the, you know, in these conflicting, confusing situations, most good writing, at least about the rest of the world and glo- the globe and, and politics and foreign affairs and travel writing and culture writing, you're dealing with something beyond the frontier of knowledge. This isn't you just look it up on Wikipedia. The whole point is that it's not accessible. Nobody knows what the right number is. And so my job is to go out there and take a look and see what can be learned and measured and understood. But that's a juggling act. That's you know figuring, well, this person says that, that other person says that. Some people are for it, some people are against it. The complexity of the situation is the source of the writing and the greatness. And wrestling with those demons takes me a long time. Basically, I read a draft and then I say, you idiot, this is completely completely wrong, you moron. I, throw, I sort of feel like I'm throwing it out, but actually what I'm doing is rewriting it and fixing one problem after another. And then I go through another draft. You idiot, you moron, this is garbage. And I just got to fix all this. This is going to take minutes. It's been weeks just trying to save myself from these idiotic mistakes. Then I do it again. Did you and, think early on that you would get to a point where you would not think it was garbage? Yeah, I thought I would figure out how to write. Yeah. And Hemingway says that what kills writers is figuring out how to write. The, he gives this hilarious list in the Green Hills of Africa of like things that 
ruined writers. Somebody asks him, you know, the Hemingway stand-in around the campfire, the artist, you know, what, what makes for good writing? He said, what kills writers is too much alcohol or too little alcohol, too many women or too few women, too much money or too little money. And he goes on on this funny list for a while, and the character, this German guy by the campfire says, stop playing stupid. What uh, ruins writers and sort of challenges him for a final answer. And he says, what kills writers is figuring out how to write. Because then you're just enacting these rituals, and you're going through the cliches, and you've got a frame of how it's supposed to be. The struggle is the writing. The struggle of failure is the writing. The not knowing how to do it is the doing of it. And I, you know, as Conan O'Brien said, I not only have I failed a lot, I promise to fail even more. <laughs> that is the best place to stop. We're going to stop right there. So thank you so much for agreeing to do this. And thank you. All right. Thanks for listening to the Long Form Podcast. I'm Evan Ratliff of Atavist. My co-hosts are Max Linsky and Aaron Lammer from Long Form. Uh, we have a new Atavist story this month, The Honeymoon Murders. You can check it out on Honeymoon Murder, singular. You can check it out on our website, atavist.com. Uh, thanks to Patrick Sims for joining us. Thanks to our wonderful editor, Lauren Kirchner. Thanks to our intern, Sarah Mandelari. And we will see you next week. Why do you run? Why does anyone? I always thought that runners loved running, and that's not the case. Most runners hate running, <laughs> but they choose to do it. In the new docu-series Running Sucks, brought to you by Team Milk, Abby Ayers learns why women runners everywhere are driven to go the distance. It really is about taking my power back and proving myself wrong. Team Milk is about fueling women's performance and helping them along their marathon journeys. You can sign up now for the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon taking place in Savannah, Georgia on November 16th, 2024. Learn more and register at everywomansmarathon.com.